From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 184 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? Oh, I'm just so wonderful. I think I, I'm so excited for this episode. I felt like it was my my destiny to finally <laughs> be here for this episode. But how are oh, you? I'm glad. Oh, I'm doing well. I feel like I have nothing to complain about with when I think of our friends and listeners and what they're going through in some parts of the country with weather and freezing conditions and no electricity. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and I, I know we're seeing on the news all the various reasons for that, you know, whether it's frozen windmills and or whatever it might be. But I, our heart just goes out to all of you. I can't imagine being in those conditions with no electricity, no heat. Yeah. And mm-hmm. all that. I mean... I, I just can't. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it, it's tough. It's one of those situations where, you know, especially like with Texas, you expect you expect uh, some places along the coast to lose power because of of hurricanes, the same way that we lose power in Florida because of hurricanes and or, or in California. And, yeah, California, we lose it when it's windy. Yeah, well, and like so, there's all <laughs> these places that like you're used to having natural reasons for why why you'd lose power the difference is there's not a lot of places that lose power when you're also in the middle of below zero temperatures i mean there is definitely in areas like minnesota and higher up north in wisconsin and such but not in these other areas that are really being affected by it so it's it's one of those things. It's 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 scary. It's sad. I read a story, not to bring it down, but I read a story then about, you know, people lose power. They go and sit in their cars and then give themselves <gasps> yes. carbon monoxide poisoning. It's yes, like, I heard that. It's just, I, I feel so terrible for everyone out there who's dealing with this. I, I hope, I hope by the time that this comes out and, and you're listening to it, it's because we've all gotten through it and everything is in a much better place or it's on the way back to being there. And what's about to come is going to be a hour plus of fun talking about an attraction. Most people just really don't like. (laughs) (laughs) I almost put that in my conclusion, something like that. I took it out. (laughs) So I'm not even going to get into it. So (laughs) it's funny. You said that. Um, Anyway, but yes, well, <laughs> but yes, we we hope that that we bring you some some w- warm you up a little yeah. in the next hour and a half or so. But but, we, but you are in our thoughts. Yes. Um, 
In, in this episode, we are continuing our look at the history of Epcot Center with an examination of the attraction that replaced the Horizons Pavilion, Mission Space. And so for a lot of you right there, you probably already dislike this pavilion, um, those of you who are fans of Horizons. Mission Space is located in Future World East, which is planned to be redesignated as World Discovery. And We'll we'll get a little into that in our um, at the end of the end of the this episode. Yeah. A space pavilion originally titled Journeys into Space had been proposed for Epcot Center as early as 1978. NASA was actively courted by Disney to help with the direction and presentation of the pavilion. So sure was Walt Disney Productions on the completion of a space pavilion for Epcot Center that NASA frequently appeared in concept art, and the pavilion seemingly would have served as an official showplace for upcoming missions and new technology emerging from the Kennedy Space Center, only a few miles to the east. And while it's not officially a sponsor, as NASA NASA is a federal government agency, they could have appeared in the guise of a partnership in exhibition, as they did for many years of Listen to the Land with their anti-gravity testing. Only this time, the tests and technology would be much more relevant and be focused on the actual theme of the pavilion. NASA's presence would also be very prestigious for Epcot Center. The earliest versions of the attraction proposed a large show building designed to appear as if it contained an orbiting space station. The exterior of the building would look like a launch pad with a spacecraft ready for launch with a launch gantry. The base of the building would be wedge-shaped, reminiscent of the building that would be designed for Horizons. One of the early concepts for the pavilion, developed with science fiction author Ray Bradbury, would take guests on an omnimover ride through space and into orbit, where guests would then embark on a variety of different hands-on activities, or enter a main show presentation, which would be a massive interstellar space vehicle simulating a launch up to a space station that would take dozens of guests into space, utilizing Omnimax screens to serve as windows into outer space and with a view of Earth. These windows would rotate to simulate the rotating gravity walls of a space station and would be the centerpiece of the Journeys in Space Pavilion. Now, from the beginning, Disney had trouble finding a sponsor for this pavilion, with Kodak briefly being considered in 1979 with a proposal emphasizing new space imaging technologies and space telescopes. Kodak instead chose to sponsor Journey into Imagination. The high projected cost, the continued lack of a sponsor, and shifting priorities would result in this pavilion being shelved. In 1982, the Imagineers resubmitted the idea of a space pavilion when Epcot Center's second group of pavilions was being considered for Phase 2 of Future World. The Living Seas Pavilion took the original Journeys into Space area, so the plot of land between the Living Seas and the Living with the Land Pavilion was designated for Journeys into Space. In 1990, Journeys into Space was proposed again with a redesign to the, to the physical environments. 
Delta Airlines was considered as a possible sponsor. But once again, the project stalled due to a lack of funding. After General Electric discontinued its sponsorship of Horizons in 1993, the Imagineers developed another space pavilion design for the building. The concept for the pavilion would include a dark ride that explored the history of futurism, whilst offering its own optimistic predictions of things to come. Early designs for this space pavilion, seen in a 1996 pitch document, would try to repurpose and add onto the original building, turning the exterior into a pyramid with an astrolabe as an entrance icon. Inside would be two attractions, a dark ride focused on the history of how man has observed, explored, and imagined the stars, and the speculator a simulator attraction taking a surreal imaginative journey through the cosmos with the theme that the only thing as vast as the universe is our own minds. So, Craig, I, what do you think of this concept? I, I was just about to say, I feel like if this concept would have actually came to be, then whatever it would, whether, you know, it had a journeys into space name or still mission space whatever the name would have been i i feel like this concept would have been so much more relevant than ultimately ultimately what came to be and you know obviously a simulator attraction uh, starts to bring up ideas of what mission space ultimately is but uh just the the line you said they're taking a surreal imaginative journey through the cosmos with a theme that the only thing as vast as the universe is our own minds. Like to me, that's not mission space in any way, shape and form. Mission space is a simulator of going up into space to get to a destination like that. This, uh, the, the description that you read that to me sounds like you're going to live almost sort of the ending of, of 2001 a space odyssey or like a simulator that is the equivalent of going to a pink floyd laser show at your your local uh your local uh science center or such and like that to me sounds so much more interesting than just the straightforward let's go up into space like give me give me some high concept stuff that's that's just really wild and out there. You're an attraction that you can do anything with this. Really, let's blow our minds. Let's not just let's not be extremely practical, but then also just having having the dark ride with with how man has observed, explored, and imagined the stars. That just that sounds so cool. I mean it's I know bits and pieces of that, you know, you, you kind of be like, okay, well, concepts of that in horizons even to an extent same similar concepts of what had happened over in in world of motion in a way in spaceship earth but i don't know something something in this context in a pavilion where you're, you're sharing these two attractions it just it seemed like seemed like a home run so sad that it didn't come to fruition it is because i this fits so well into the original concept of future world where you know, you look at the past, the present, and the future, and you expand, I don't know, your experience and your thoughts yeah. and and look forward to what, what could happen. 
you know, and, um, whereas now attractions, I don't know, they seem to do all the thinking for us. That is true. And, yeah. and I, and I feel like the early future world didn't. It, it, it took you on a journey and then, and then it left, then it dropped you off so that you could continue the journey within your own mind as to what are all the possibilities based on what this attraction has just presented. Exactly. There's, it, you don't, I, I understand that some people want to just come to a theme park to be, to be thrilled or amused and not necessarily to have it be a lesson or thinking, but I feel like you can accomplish you can accomplish both. Uh, it's mm-hmm. there. A good, good attraction will make you think a little bit in a way. I mean, the same way that over at Animal Kingdom, you can get on Kilimanjaro safaris and you can enjoy the experience, see the animals. But the ultimate takeaway is to think about think about how these. Um, why can't I think of the word of them in Africa that conserve conservation areas like. How, conservation station exactly yeah mm-hmm. it's a you know you're thinking about what good impact those can help oh. dealing mm-hmm. with poaching and other issues that our animals are dealing with around the world so like something like that that they don't they used to try to really shove that message down your throat they pulled back the experience is still enjoyable and they say just enough to keep that thought in your mind there is a balance of it and i don't i, I don't see that with a lot of what has come uh, from Epcot in the years since it, it seems like it seems like they're just trying to rebrand as far away from Epcot being known in the the eighties and nineties is the 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 park that gets you out of school for your for your little vacation in the middle of the year and you can tell your teachers it's okay because you went to Epcot and that was that was the long running joke about it and. And now it's like, okay, well, we need to we need to get away from that. No thinking, no learning. Let's just be as far away as possible from that. Yeah. Except for yeah. like living with the land, which still survives somehow. Who knows why? <laughs> I don't know. They haven't come up with a, a intellectual property that they can shove in there and replace it. Oh, we we came <laughs> up with it last week. The uh, the Arcuan bird. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. <laughs> Well, then in 1999, the computer company Compact entered into talks for a space-themed pavilion. The talks ultimately focused on a concept from the Journeys into Space Pavilion, an enhanced G-Force simulation. So Imagineering's concept for the repurposed Horizons building would be rejected in favor of a more thrilling attraction, and it was decided that Horizons would be fully demolished in favor of a fresh start. On April 20th, 2000, Mission Space was announced, and demolition of the Horizons building and construction of Mission Space began shortly afterwards. And industry estimates put the cost of developing the new attraction at $100 million. After demolishing Horizons, work on the site for the new pavilion began, and by late 2000, the foundations were poured and vertical construction began. In the summer of 2001, a preview display promoting Mission Space opened in Innoventions East, and initially the pavilion was sponsored by Compaq, which began working with Disney Imagineers on the design in April 2000. 
but Hewlett-Packard assumed the sponsorship after its merger with Compaq in 2002, causing a redesign of the signage for the preview display and the pavilion. It's always a shame. My my childhood computers growing up were all Compaqs, so oh. I still, <laughs> still miss my Compaq Presarios where I, oh. I learned everything I needed to know about computers. Did you buy them at Radio Shack? I I have no idea where my dad bought computers. <laughs> I think I think by the last one we had, or at least by the time we switched to a Dell, by then we were ordering them online. But okay. who knows? I it's uh, he probably did buy at least one at Radio Shack. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, three and a half years after research and design had started, one bay was ready for test and adjust by September two thousand and two. The intent of the ride is to give guests the sensation that they are going on an actual mission into outer space. The attraction is essentially a multiple-armed centrifuge. The illusion of acceleration is achieved by spinning and tilting capsules that you sit in during the approximately four- to five-minute mission to space. Fans blow air gently at riders to help avoid motion sickness, and a magnified display in front of each rider simulates a window to space with high-resolution computer-generated imagery. Now, Mission Space comprises four separate centrifuges, each with ten capsules holding four riders, bringing the hourly capacity to 1,600 riders. The attraction exposes riders to forces up to 2.5 Gs, more than twice the force of gravity at the Earth's surface, effectively multiplying a rider's weight by 2.5. A few months after the ride's opening, motion sickness bags were added within easy reach of the riders. The images of Mars seen in the attraction were created using real data from Mars, including actual photographs from the Mars orbiters that were, at the time, sending the images back to Earth. The pavilion, like others at Epcot Center, had a VIP lounge for Hewlett-Packard employees called the Red Planet Room. And the lounge is also used by the Make-A-Wish Foundation children who may need a comfortable break in the air conditioning during the day. The pavilion was completed and handed over to Epcot Operations on May 30th, 2003, and previews began a week later. Mission Space blasted off with a soft opening on August 15th, 2003, and an official grand opening on October 9th, 2003. The official press release read, Guests who accept the mission will engage in a one-of-a-kind astronaut experience that launches them into a simulated space adventure, from pulse-racing liftoff to the sensations of traveling through outer space on a mission to Mars. The new attraction is the most technologically advanced ever created by Disney. In association with former NASA advisors, astronauts, and scientists, Walt Disney Imagineering developed Mission Space as the first ride system ever created to take guests straight up in simulated flight. The grand ceremony was attended by Disney CEO Michael Eisner, Hewlett-Packard CEO Carly Fiorina, and NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe as well as several NASA astronauts from its many programs of human space exploration, including Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the Space Shuttle Program, and two crew members aboard the International Space Station. 
At its core, the experience of the original space pavilion had changed from being a space journey into a space flight training experience. This avoided the complexities for the Imagineers of creating a plausible backstory for transporting guests to outer space and back. The setting for the attraction is several decades into the future, sometime after the year 2035, a time where anybody can travel into space if they have the proper training. This can be deduced from the plaques in the attraction's queue celebrating 75 years of human spaceflight, right when Yuri Gregarin became the first human to journey into outer space in 1961. The purpose of the International Space Training Center, or ISTC, is for recruiting and training guests to be space pioneers. The storyline makes it clear that guests are not actually leaving Earth during their training exercise. Guests arrive at the planetary plaza of the ISTC and are visually guided to start thinking in terms of orbits and curves by the large-scale planets scattered around. The ISTC's curvilinear building is fronted by the planetary plaza containing three large sculptures of celestial bodies. The largest, Jupiter, is 16 feet in diameter, and the smallest, Earth, is 10 feet. The Earth sculpture sits on a pedestal and rotates whilst being wrapped by the swirling mission space marquee. The nearby moon sculpture is 12 feet in diameter and covers with markers indicating historic manned and unmanned missions to the lunar surface. The walls of the plaza have plaques with quotes by famed space explorers, astronomers, and supporters of space exploration, including Galileo, Carl Sagan, and astronaut Kalpana Chala, who died in the February 2003 Columbia Space Shuttle accident. We enter the building through a large red sphere on the front of the building meant to resemble Mars. This supports the storyline of the attraction that it is for the training of guests for the future colonization of Mars. Over 100 shades of red were considered when determining the exact tone for the spherical entryway. Inside the 45,000 square foot show building, we walk along the switchback queue past models of futuristic spacecraft and a 35-foot-tall gravity wheel. Along the queue are a number of interesting visuals, including a genuine lunar rover on loan from the Smithsonian. There are, from there, pass into the command room, where cast members sit behind a glass wall and multiple control panels. On the wall are plaques commemorating outstanding firsts in space travel, first man in space, first man on the moon, all the way up to the fictitious first family in space, I'm assuming it's the Robinsons, and first deep space mission. At the end of the queue, guests are sent into a briefing room in 10 groups of four each or 40 astronaut trainees per ride bay. There are four pre-show areas and ride bays denoted in color as red, blue, green, and yellow. On the overhead televisions in the pre-show area, we view an introduction to space training led by Capcom, who bears a remarkable resemblance to actor Gary Sinise, who starred in the films Apollo 13 and Mission to Mars. 
there are multiple warnings about the intensity of the attraction and the ability to opt out of your training experience by alerting a uniformed crew member. Spiels and warnings throughout the attraction caution the people who do not like enclosed dark spaces, simulators, spinning, or are prone to motion sickness should not ride. Signs also warn that the ride may cause nausea, headache, dizziness, or disorientation, and that people prone to motion sickness or who have a headache or an inner ear problem or who have a history of migraines, vertigo, or elevated anxiety also should not ride. There are also signs which instruct the rider to keep their head flat against the headrest, stating that if one ignores this, the centrifugal motion acts on one's head can cause undesirable effects, such as dizziness and or headaches, or possibly even more serious effects. You may hear guests' comments that the continual warnings are more frightening than the actual attraction. We are also introduced to the X-2 Deep Space Shuttle spacecraft that will be propelling us into space during our training mission. The X-2 vehicle is a three-stage rocket which is said to use several technologies in development today, like aerospike engines, solid hydrogen fuel, an aerobrake, and carbon nanotubes. Upon the conclusion of the pre-show, we move into a circular pre-boarding hallway that surrounds the ride bay of the attraction. The ten groups are spaced evenly around the bay in this hallway, with each passenger standing atop a number on the floor in front of an entry door to the ride bay. Next to the entry door is a screen displaying a second pre-show video featuring Capcom, who shares additional warnings about the intensity of the attraction. We then learn about the job each of the four passengers will perform in the pod, and what functions they will activate during the training mission. Each guest is assigned an onboard role of navigator, pilot, commander, or engineer, and given two tasks to perform during the mission, pressing a specific button when prompted. For example, one of the commander's buttons initiates the rocket's first stage separation, and the other activates manual flight control. The spacecraft's onboard self-automated pilot will perform each task if the guest does not respond to their prompt from mission control or if there is no one to perform the task. Yeah, I I have come from a family of four, and so it took a very long time for me to find out that nothing happens if you have an empty seat. And, like, I, I feel like the first time I rode where it was only three people in or two people, I had that like brief moment of like, well, what's going to happen? Like, <laughs> I, I am far too old to, to believe that the ride is going to change because someone's not there. But my family, we were we were the type of people that we all four of us rode and we would all press the buttons when we were actually told to. So there was no question mm-hmm. about whether or not we were the ones actually controlling that ship. Oh, we did too. We did too. We were a family of four as well. And then when um, we weren't or somebody opted out, like Carol usually, uh, one of us would reach over and push the buttons in that control. um, Guilty of doing that as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
After one last warning about the attraction's intensity, the doors to one of the four ride bays opens, and we enter our pod. An over-the-shoulder harness secures each passenger in their seat, and the entire pod closes like a clamshell. The individual video screens are just a few inches from our face. To lower the chances of nausea for motion sickness, a cooling breeze blows in our faces from the air conditioning system. Each centrifuge of the ride system is anchored in a basement 30 feet below, which is also where the ride motor is located. Our space training flight includes scenes of a shuttle launch, a slingshot around the moon, hypersleep to pass the time during our lengthy journey to Mars, dodging an asteroid field, and a, a rough landing there on the surface of Mars. The sustained G-force of 2.5 we feel during the ride is created by the centrifuge. The centrifuge is controlled by 33 show computers. To add to the realism, each pod can pitch 45 degrees back, 25 degrees forward, and roll 25 degrees to either side. After our thrilling journey, we disembark towards the center of the centrifuge and out to a large bay door, which leads to a long hallway around the perimeter of the show building, where we hear the attraction's theme song, Destiny, as we walk to the post-show area and gift shop. All the music we hear during the exit of the ride is custom-written and scored for this attraction. Trevor Rabin, a one-time member of the rock band Yes, and a prolific composer of motion picture scores, composed the music for Mission Space. The post-show area includes a children's play area and interactive space-themed games. There are four sections in the post-show, set up in similar style of the global neighborhood at the end of Spaceship Earth. In this Hewlett-Packard-sponsored advanced training lab, guests of all ages have an opportunity to explore interactive space experiences, which includes Space Base, a play area for young children with a space theme, Expedition Mars, a joystick video game in which the four-minute mission is for an astronaut, who's you, to find four other astronauts on the surface of Mars. Postcards from space. Guests can email a short video of themselves with one of the space-themed backgrounds and create a great souvenir of the mission space experience. This is my favorite one. I always chose the one where I fall out of the lunar lander. <laughs> I never did it. Never once. <laughs> Then there's Space Race. Two teams compete against each other in a race to send their rocket from Mars back to Earth. Nearly 60 people can play the high-energy game at one time. Now, if this experience doesn't sound totally familiar, it may be because you wrote Mission Space after 2006. The experience I just described was the original experience if you wrote the attraction in 2003 through 2006. So why was the attraction changed? For that answer, we have to go back to the development of the attraction and its early years of operation. It reportedly took more than 650 Imagineers, more than 350,000 hours, and over five years to develop mission space. In reality, the simulator hardware used in Mission Space was designed and built by the Environmental Tectonics Corporation of Pennsylvania, or ETC, with a nearly $30 million contract awarded in 1998 by the Walt Disney Company. Environmental Tectonics sued Disney in 2003. 
Their claims included $15 million in damages for non-payment of work on the attraction, questions over who owned the development rights to the new ride, sharing proprietary design details with competitors, and concerns that the ride had not been properly safety tested before opening to guests. Well, as you can imagine, Disney countersued, alleging the company failed to deliver according to the contract and increased the cost of the ride by nearly $20 million, and that ETC acted unprofessionally, failed to submit materials in a timely manner, failed to check measurement tolerances, and to comply with deadlines. The Disney company also reported that ETC delivered defective and non-conforming materials, failed to manage the work of subcontractors, failed to provide proper document control, and did not provide sufficient numbers of qualified supervisory personnel for the project. Despite requests for the case to be expedited because of safety concerns, the lawsuit lingered in the court system. The Disney Company claimed ETC only wanted the process expedited so as to gain access to Imagineering's intellectual property. On June 13, 2005, concern over the safety of Mission Space became public when a four-year-old boy died after riding the attraction. On June 15, 2005, a federal judge in Pennsylvania threw out the part of ETC's lawsuit that alleged the ride had not been properly safety tested. A November 15, 2005 autopsy report determined the young boy died of a pre-existing and previously undiagnosed heart condition called myocardial hypertrophy. The attraction continued normal operation after it was found there was no mechanical failure of the ride system. Then, on April 11, 2006, Hiltrude Blumel fell ill after riding the attraction and was transported to Celebration Hospital. She passed away the next day. The April 14, 2006 autopsy report found she had suffered a stroke linked to her high blood pressure. Mission Space resumed operations as it had before, but this time the wait times for the attraction dropped significantly. It appeared the guests were feeling uneasy about the safety of the attraction. The attraction was shut down and reopened on May 19, 2006, with green and orange versions of the experience. The green version of the attraction was the same visual and pitch roll experience without the spinning of the centrifuge. The orange version was the full motion original attraction. The original standby queue became the orange queue and the single rider queue became the green queue. Now when guests entered the pavilion, they were required to choose which version of the attraction they wanted to experience. A cast member would give each guest a card with warnings on it that they would be required to return it to a cast member when boarding. Signage was updated throughout the pavilion to reflect the the two queues, and the pre-show videos were modified to fit the two versions. So Craig, did your family go in the green mission or the orange mission? We did the orange mission more often than not. Uh, I, after a couple of years, then it definitely took it down to to green. But I would still 
go on orange. I, I did orange for the longest time, and uh, uh, we'll get more into that as we go along with this episode. But uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's it's an it was an intense attraction with orange, but it's not. It's not like it's it's. It was just isolated in those couple areas with with extreme moments of of it being a little too much. But beyond that, I mean, when except for the couple moments where it was heavy gravity, after that, it's just it was a lot of fun. So it, it didn't become until you know my parents started getting a little older and and saying like, why would we? Why would we go on this thing that makes us uncomfortable? That we we started to to stretch back, but before that, it was. It's all about doing it, doing it the the original way. It's close to mm-hmm. the original. Yeah. yeah, we were more green mission, and um, for, so that the whole family could enjoy it. So, and it was still enjoyable. You still have you know feelings of movement, you know, that because of the pitch and roll and all that. So, yeah, I I didn't I didn't really give green a fair shot in the beginning. I I kind of just shut it down and. It it's not it, you know it. We'll continue on with the story of it, but even then, like comparing the two back to back, it's still it was still a fun attraction. It just was in my mind being a younger thrill seeker. It was just like, well, why why would I want to just get in a claustrophobic box and kind of be shaken around when there's not as much payoff as the the intense thrill seeking version of it, but. You know, it's that's also the brain of a young person that that isn't thinking clearly and and won't realize that in 10, 15, 20 years, even even further on, that you'll feel completely different about it. And mm-hmm. well, that's that's where I'm at now. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lawsuit was filed against the Walt Disney Company on June 12, 2006, by the parents of the four-year-old boy, claiming that their child never should have been allowed on the attraction, and alleging that the park did not offer an adequate medical response after the child collapsed. On January 11, 2007, the lawsuit was dismissed, as the family and the Walt Disney Company settled out of court. The Walt Disney Company and the Environmental Tectonics Corporation of Pennsylvania finally settled out of court on January 6, 2009. Both of these settlements were confidential. Mission Space was closed for refurbishment on June 5, 2017, and during the D23 Expo in 2017, it was announced that the Green Mission would be given a new video simulating a flight around the Earth. Rather than traveling to Mars, Green Mission participants are launched into space and then are treated to an orbit around the planet Earth, passing identifiable landmarks along the way. During this mission, guests experience liftoff and then enjoy a beautiful orbit around the Earth. Of course, things go wrong, and guests must manually navigate through a storm upon landing. The Orange Mission would keep the Mars mission, but with updated high-resolution graphics. The attraction reopened on August 13, 2017. As part of the 2017 update, Gary Sinise was replaced by actress Gina Torres, which became controversial at one point, I, I, which surprised me when I was doing my research on this. It did. People, I don't remember that. Gary Sinise has his fans. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, am, I am one of them. I, you know, I... 
I grew up watching a lot of movies that Gary Sinise was in, from Forrest Gump to I even do appreciate Mission to Mars. Uh, there's there's a lot of Gary Sinise movies that that I love, and I was like, and I saw him at Candlelight Processional a couple times. He's he's really good at delivering uh, that that story, but I I mean when he moved on from it, it's like it's one of those things that's like, well, you know, it's it. No one said it was ever going to be forever. I, I think it was, <laughs> it's. I, I don't think it was a bad move, and I don't. They could have obviously recast him, but why not? Why not change things up a little bit every now and yeah. then? So, yeah. but huh? I learned learned something new. Yeah. It was also announced at the 2017 D23 Expo that a new restaurant would be added to the Mission Space Pavilion, later named um, Space Two Twenty. Guests will take a space elevator ride up to dine aboard a space station, and this will ultimately serve as a fulfillment of the original space station journey concept for the journeys to space pavilion. When Imagineers replace an attraction with a new one, they are known to leave homages to the previous attraction somewhere within the new attraction, and several references to Horizons can be found in Mission Space. The Horizons logo is at the center of the rotating gravity wheel in the queue. During the pre-show, the Horizons logo can be found in the bottom right-hand corner of some of the screens in the video, along with the text Brava Centauri, the space-themed location featured in Horizons. The Horizons logo can also be seen during the safety briefing outside the capsule. The Horizons logo can also be found on the front of the cash register counter in a gift shop on the way out of the attraction. The planter at the front of the building formerly contained the Horizons marquee. The planter was not removed nor significantly altered during Mission Space's construction. With the 2017 refurbishment, the Brava Centauri station can be seen orbiting Earth in a new mural at the entrance of the attraction. There's also a tribute to the Magic Kingdom's Mission to Mars and Flight to the Moon attractions. In the Mission Control Room in the queue, the footage of the bird landing was reused from the pre-show of these attractions. That's always a good one. (laughs) (laughs) The upcoming Space 220 restaurant takes place within the Centauri Space Station, a homage to the Centauri Series station seen within Horizons. So, Craig, do you think is is Mission Space a worthy successor to Horizons, or is it a lesser experience? I don't want to. I don't want to be one of those people that glorifies Horizons, but I think with the episodes we did on it, while you can say that it became not, I don't want to say dated necessarily, but yeah, kind of you know that that old classic pass by animatronics slowly that that does that does get dated with time it doesn't mean we can't still love it and have nostalgia for it but we have to call it what it is at the same time it it, it gets dated uh however to then replace it with an attraction that also dated itself very quickly that that doesn't do it any that doesn't do horizons any better justice by removing it because uh looking back on it now you know it's mission space has been around for what, 18 years and uh and compare that to horizons like i feel like 
Horizons just had way more mega fans in that amount of time than Mission Space does. Mission Space has fans, but the other thing about Mission Space is, like, we, we said flat out what the capacity for it is 1,600 people an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's not a lot of people. I, I don't remember what the capacity was for Horizons, but I can guarantee that a, a Omnimover that continuously moves, that's it's churning through a lot more people than 1600 oh, an hour. It's, signif- it's significantly less. It was in it's in my notes. Um, yeah. what Horizon's capacity was and it's significantly less. Mission space is significantly less. Mission than space is mission yeah. space is significantly less. Yeah. yeah, and so I mean you can't even like. Yeah, Horizons might have always been a shorter line, and you can get on it easier, but um, that's that doesn't mean that it's less of a quality. It's just it knows how to handle people better. Uh, Mission Space, I, that's its main problem, is that is that it hasn't handled crowds well. And there's still, like, in this day and age with orange versus green side, Orange is usually busier than green because a lot of people still want that full experience. And because of how they have it separated and how it's how the ride runs now, you you see a long line for the orange side and then green is just a complete walk on. And that, again, is just because you're splitting capacity even further with it. So I, I don't horizons might not have been in a good place towards the end, but. In my opinion, Mission Space isn't in a good position now, and I think the I, I think it's just one of those situations where now in the world of Epcot, they can't afford to just remove it. And it's been I, I think the update and uh, the update to make it the one the green side being Earth and orbiting Earth, and then the the orange side just being an upgraded HD version of mission space like i think that was a a good change to make but it's still it is past its time at walt disney world and i know that's hard to swallow for an attraction that was so expensive but uh it hasn't had a good history at all throughout it as we've gone through this episode and it's just it's it's time's up and you know it open up space 220 more people will care about that and uh, that just it made me laugh in the middle when you're reading this i forgot that that was announced back in 2017 i mean we're coming up we're coming up on the four-year mark of when it was announced and it's still not open and for all i know it could it could be another it could be five years before this restaurant actually opens up uh, with with the state of the world and where it's going and that's just it's all it's all so funny i i just i don't even know what to say about it but it's maybe horizons wasn't wasn't worthy of the space it was taken but mission space is in my opinion not worthy of that spot there is something better that should be in that area well once a few years you know once mission space doesn't have a sponsor you know i think we'll see i mean because that's an expensive uh, i think pavilion to maintain it's so um also it there's a lot of there's a lot of cast members there uh, i I, when I got hired for the college program, I knew that I was going to work at, at, in Future World, and I did not know which, which section I, I was going to be in at first. And then once I found out that I was going to be on the side with uh, Test Track, Mission Space, 
universe of energy and spaceship Earth and that that realm. Like, okay. And then Seas was technically in in our side, too, even though that makes no sense whatsoever. But it was. Um, I, once I found out that side, basically all the college program kids, they all either went to Test Track or Mission Space. Most of the most of the people back then who were working at the other attractions were people who were full-time and part-time who could put a bid in and they wanted to work at the slower attractions because why wouldn't you? And I dreaded thinking that I was going to go work at Mission Space because there was more people that were going and being pulled for Mission Space than Test Track. But luckily, I ended up where I did. But uh, a lot, a lot of people have a lot of people are needed for mission space to run when it's running at full capacity. I know, I know they, they've probably found ways over the years to, to really uh, hone in on which spots aren't necessarily as needed. So that way they don't have to run with the big staff, but it's, it's, it's very costly to run. Obviously any attraction that's high tech is also going to have its issues that need maintained constantly as well too. So it is, not just wasn't an expensive attraction when they were building it. It's an expensive attraction to run. And it's it's almost one of those things I think it is in Disney's best interest eventually down the line when the timing is right. Get rid of it and put something in that is more effective and holds holds its time, holds its place in time a lot better. Because it's uh, there are always there's always younger kids coming through that you know, have that thrill-seeking edge and want to do orange. And there's a lot of adults who want to do it too. But like, I guess, I guess I always ignored that until I went through my health incident a couple of years back where I had the blood clots in my lungs. And since then, I'm just, I'm, I'm too paranoid to ride the, the orange side at all. I just, mm-hmm. I, I know the history of people that were on this attraction and I know, I know how, these G forces can really affect the human body and, you know, for the average healthy person, not so much, but if you have something wrong, then it can, it can do some damage. And I'm just, I I'm terrified of the orange side now thinking that I might have a health issue that would put me at risk. So really it's just the the green side is the only side for me that's, that's relevant anymore. And I think about how many people go to the parks where maybe the green side is the only relevant side for them, or maybe not at all. And I'm not saying Disney should have absolutely every single thing for every single person. That's that's not realistic. But uh, for the amount of space it takes up, I feel like I feel like there's got to be something else. I agree. I agree. It, it wouldn't break my heart if someday they replace it. Of course, I, I'm worried in this era where everything has to be related to a film. A blockbuster film, you know what? What would that be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's that's another tough part is that you have this really great Marvel property that takes place in outer space in a way that really makes you think and bends the limits of of imagination, kind of similar to the the one concept we mentioned here. In a way, you have a you have a perfect Marvel movie that can fit in that also falls in that category where they can actually use the characters because they're not part of the deal with with universal in marvel and theme parks but then you go and you put those characters inside a pavilion that was about energy mm-hmm. so there's there i feel like i there will be another space movie to come along i mean it's it, it's not just guardians of the galaxy and wally and 
tossing in the towel there. There will be something else one day, but yeah, how long are we going to have to wait so that way they can have the synergy that they want? And yeah, uh, or they'll t- turn it into Adventures Campus. Yeah, <laughs> they'll take out something else. I mean, if, <laughs> as much as I don't want to lose the building, the of Wonders of Life, where the play pavilion is going in, I, I, oh, I, maybe I would be okay with the Avengers Campus if you make it take out the play pavilion and Wonders of Life, put something else in, and really, really turn it into a complete Marvel section. But I. I I, I don't. Now I have to process all this. I'm having a meltdown. <laughs> I don't know what to think anymore. Well, well, let us know. Is Mission Space one of your favorite attractions? Is it a must-do attraction? What what side do you go on, orange or green? Let us know at Connecting Walt. So maybe maybe you have photos with um, Gary Sinise. You can share. Yeah, that's actually <laughs> only share your photos with Gary Sinise, even if you have to Photoshop yourself in. <laughs> Uh, but now it's time to launch ourselves into this week in Disney history. Well, Craig, we're in the week of February 21st, and we're in the season of Lent no. for our Christian friends. So, From the um, season of love to the season of Lent. Yes. Oh, my. You're so poetic. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, February 21st. Hazel Gilman, the Disney studio nurse, was born in Bisbee, Cochise County, Arizona, on February 21st, 1904. Moving to Los Angeles in 1929, she was hired by the Walt Disney Studio after completing nursing school. Walt Disney received a fairly serious neck injury in a polo game in 1938, and it was Gilman who helped nurse him back to health. But under a pseudonym, Gilman also co-wrote over 90 songs with studio composer Paul Smith for the Walt Disney Studio. What was her pseudonym? um, I remember remember that it's Gil something. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the last part, but I remember Gil. Gil George. Yeah, so look for her in credits. She, she wrote songs for such films as The Light in the Forest, Perry, Tonka, Westward Ho, The Wagons, Old Yeller, and Pollyanna. She also contributed to television shows, including the original Disneyland show, Zorro, and the original Mickey Mouse Club. Her songwriting career ended when partner Smith retired in 1962. As a nurse, she continued treating Walt right up until he entered St. Joseph Hospital in 1966. And sadly, her contributions to Disney's musical heritage are often overlooked. So, so make a point of looking for her name in, in those classic Disney films and telling people and then asking your friends, hey, do you know what her real name is? Yes. <laughs> it, uh, impress them with trivia. Yeah. February 22nd, fans began to gather at the main gate of Disneyland around 9 p.m. on February 22nd, 2010, for the next day opening of what attraction? I don't know. Why would... 2010? I don't feel like anything big opened in 2010. Oh, I would agree with you. It was the return engagement of Captain EO. Oh, man. Oh, those people <laughs> wasted their time. <laughs> <laughs> well, first in line was Daniel Liu, 36, from Oceanside. I am positive I have met Daniel. 
Well, I believe he's a photographer. If he listens to this for some reason, uh, I, no offense. I did not mean to insult you. (laughs) uh, What were you thinking? (laughs) And the funny thing is, is that the next day they talk about the opening and how many people were in line to get in. And it, there was no need to wait overnight, unless you just wanted to be the first person on or the first group in. But it was like 60-something people, 64-something. It had to be just solely people who wanted to be the first. I mean, you can't even be like, oh, well, we don't know how long it's going to last. We need to make sure we get in on day one. They could pull it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. what, it only ran seven years, six years before they yeah. pulled it out of Disneyland, something like that? I don't I don't even remember. it. It feels like it ran way too long on its return engagement that should have only been I like agree. six months. I agree. February 23rd, the first woman to receive screen credit as an animator at Walt Disney Studios was born in Omak, Washington on February 23rd, 1916. What is her name? I'm going to let you remind me the answer <laughs> okay. to the question. Retta Scott. Yes. She, she was first hired in 1938 and assigned to the story department. Her beautiful sketches caught the eye of Walt Disney, who moved her to the animation department. Scott's Bambi credits uh, include the vicious hunting dogs in a sequence where the dogs pursue Faleen and fight with Bambi. She also contributed to Fantasia, Dumbo, and the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, and appeared on screen in the Disney live-action studio tour, The Reluctant Dragon. She was laid off from Disney during a periodic studio downsizing in late 1941, partially as a result of the Disney animator strike in the summer of 1941, but was rehired by the Disney studio in 1942 to once again work in the story department. Scott left Disney in 1946 and moved to the East Coast, where she continued to freelance, illustrating Disney publications such as the Big Golden Book edition of Disney Cinderella. She will be named a Disney legend in 2000. And she was a good friend of Mary Blair as well. Just an amazing resume right there. Mm -hmm. Just in, you know, I, I, I wish I had known her name because feels like one of those people who who deserves to be remembered by everyone yeah absolutely and you'll see her um not only you you you'll see her name in, in the little golden books yeah. of some of the classic um disney films adaptations okay february 24th Walt Disney's second live-action film based on a novel by Robert Louis Stevenson is released on february twenty fourth nineteen sixty what is the film's title uh, kidnapped. Correct. That's right. Starring Peter Finch, Peter O'Toole, and James MacArthur. Kidnapped and cheated out of his inheritance, young David Balfour, who's MacArthur, falls in love with a Jacobite adventurer, Alan Breck Stewart, who's played by Peter Finch. Directed by Robert Stevenson, it is based on the Robert Louis Stevenson classic historical novel, Kidnapped, first published in 1886. And like we said, this is Disney's second production based on a novel by Stevenson, Treasure Island being the first. Although publicists tried to prove otherwise, the film's director insisted there was no relation between him and author Robert Louis Stevenson. I think that was one of the Turner Classic Movies um, Treasures from the Disney Vault films. I remember talking about this. Yes. No, I definitely, I don't remember what year it was, but 
It definitely was mm-hmm. at some point in time there. Okay, February 25th, Walt Disney's Mouseketeers performed live in Yuba City, California, not far from where I'm sitting right now, on February 25th, 1956. What is the reason for this special live performance? I, I have no idea, besides the fact they just wanted to do it. Oh, now this show, held at the Yuba City High School, is a late Christmas gift for the town's children, whose Christmas had been ruined by a devastating flood last December 24th. Oh. The town was basically wiped out. That's it was sad. underwater. And Walt saw that on the news and how Christmas had been destroyed along with the town. So he arranged for this. That's, I mean, a happy ending there, but Mm -hmm. still sad. Yeah, we still see uh, every once in a while the news will, local news on this date or something will have, um, though they'll show, uh, they'll show photos from it. February 26th, what award did Walt Disney receive on the 10th annual Golden Globe Awards held at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California on February 26th, 1953? I feel like you've asked me this question before. I I think it was... I, don't know, I feel like it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. It was. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of what the Golden Globes call it, though. It's not coming to me. The Cecil B. DeMille Award. Oh, that was easy. Yeah. Given for Lifetime Achievement in Motion Pictures by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, the award is named in honor of Cecil B. DeMille, one of the industry's most successful filmmakers. Walt Disney's award is only the second ever given. Cecil B. DeMille himself was awarded the very first one, in 1952. All right. February 27th. Which Hollywood celebrity took over Disneyland for a private after-hours birthday bash on February 27th, 1992? Hmm. I don't know. Elizabeth Taylor. Her exclusive 60th birthday party for 1,000 of her closest friends is held in Fantasyland. Good for her. She earned yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to. I, I'm trying to think though. Okay, a thousand. If it's in just the original area of Fantasyland, I thought, okay, that's that's quite a few people. But I wonder if they extended it down to it's a small world. Maybe. Yeah. Then it wouldn't be as bad. Wait. So you weren't so, there. I was not. I was a thousand and one on her list. How? That's just plain <laughs> rude. But... I just didn't make the cut. It's fine. I mean, it's, it's someone had to get left at home. I know. I know. I know. I couldn't even get hired as a server. I'm assuming food was served. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, this was a tough one this week. It was. You made it very difficult. So I, I appreciate it. I, I learned a little bit on this episode of trivia. I don't know why I called it an episode. I'm still, I'm flustered about Mission Space still. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be better next week. 
If you'd like to catch up or re-listen to what we've covered so far in our series on Epcot Center, start with episode four of Connecting with Walt, titled The Master Plan. Craig and I talked about Walt Disney's original plan for Epcot, what a visit to Epcot the city as Walt envisioned it might have been like. If you have not listened to episode four, I highly recommend you listen to it to learn about Walt's original plans for Epcot. In episode 75, A Dream Reimagined, we talked about how the concept of Epcot changed from a city of the future to the theme park Epcot Center. And in episodes 86, 97, and 98, we talked about the history of Spaceship Earth, the icon of Epcot Center. In episodes 131 and 132, we began our exploration of Future World with a look at the Universe of Energy Pavilion. In episodes 149 and 150, we discussed the Wonders of Life Pavilion. And in episodes 167 and 173, we looked at the Horizons Pavilion. In our next installment of this series, we'll move on to the World of Motion Pavilion, which I'm sure is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. I'm ready. Right. Well, Craig, I saw something on Twitter that I thought was inter- would be interesting to discuss, and it was a post by a Theme Park Duo podcast, and I'm not familiar with them, but it was addressed to Joe Rody, and they asked, how would you feel about Wakanda being added to Animal Kingdom? And if Wakanda as a themed land would be added to a Disney park, which do you think it best fits? And I was thinking, I had no idea Wakanda was being considered for Animal Kingdom. But, um, and then Joe Rody responded, hmm, essential questions. How does this subject advance conservation advocacy? Is the IP inherently about humans and nature? Will it comprise the photo... Will it compromise the photorealistic look of the park? Marvel slash BP, which I, which you told me is Black Panther. Uh, Wakanda is mainly about human concerns. So why at the animal park? And I thought, okay, those are good questions. And those, I think, are at the heart of what Joe Rody always asks about adding anything to any park. And I thought, since we were talking about Epcot today... I thought we could, th- I thought these questions could be tweaked for any part. So how could we change these questions for Epcot? And let's say, since we already mentioned it, adding Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind attraction. Because Future World originally was designed to be a showcase for the future, showcasing new technology in conjunction with stories, often exploring the past, how we progress through the present and giving a glimpse into the future. Then at the last D23 Expo, Bob Chapek announced Epcot would be transformed to become more Disney, more family, and more timeless. And Future World has now been split into three separate lands, with Future World East being known as World Discovery, the Central Spine Area becoming World Celebration, and Future World West now known as World Nature. So, so I'm trying to think now, so what question did they ask themselves? to put in Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. So how does this subject advance conservation advocacy? So how could we rework this? How does this subject of Cosmic Rewind advance world discovery? Yeah, that's that's how, the best I could come up with. <laughs> so, how, so how do you think that – how would Cosmic Rewind uh, oh, and Guardians of the Galaxy – how do you think that question would be answered? How does it – advance world discovery i mean part of this is difficult because 
we don't know what the attraction is necessarily about because that hasn't that hasn't been been shared with us uh, at this point in time and you know i i also i i just have to say in terms of that statement i feel like i feel like it is good to it's good to be doing this right now this is a good practice and exercise i think when when discussing walt disney world or disney parks in general and i i feel like I feel like it's great that Joe Rody had that idea when it came to Animal Kingdom and and the rest of his parks, but uh, not rest of his parks, but the rest of his projects. You know, I I feel like it's a good mindset to have, but I'm also not necessarily sure that he had that mindset in his head when when he added Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout to Tower of Terror, mm-hmm. and. So I'm so that's it's also it's a little bit different difficult when you're being forced to throw intellectual properties in a park that doesn't necessarily need one and that's when this question does become important. So I, I w- again without knowing the story it's hard for me to say that it doesn't necessarily uh, forward the progression of thinking about discovering thinking about space and and beyond, but I I feel like it's a hard sell. I mean, I feel like if anything, it's going to any any concept of further exploring the greater universe is going to get get lost in like just a pre show element, and then you're just going to ride a fun roller coaster right after. And uh, I I want to believe that there's more to this story, but I just I don't I don't feel like I don't feel like there is. And, you know, I, I with even Mission Space, I, I think that's the only thing that kind of fits in the Discovery realm. I'm not sure what Test Track necessarily would fit, how that would fit into the same the same question. And it just, it kind of further shows that Epcot has lost its way, as much as we've said. Uh, it's, it's it, it, we finally found a way to give Epcot a mission statement based on the the crazy names that they've come up for the different sections of the park. But even then it's, it's hard to answer the questions honestly and earnestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, for me, world discovery, it still has to be rooted in some sort of reality and to throw in a fantasy based attraction in there. I don't know. It just doesn't fit it for me, you know, fit that concept of world discovery. Which it just makes me feel like that part of the park is it's going to become Magic Kingdom 2.0. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and even Test Track, while well, you're discovering how, I don't know, aerodynamics works and automobiles and things like that as you design your own vehicle and stuff. I, I, it's a stretch, but I think you can make a case for it. And, um, yeah, mission, mission space, there's discovery, I guess, of training to go on space missions and all that but i don't know guardians of the galaxy for me is a hard sell yeah it it doesn't fit i I think that their their concept is flawed world discovery and putting guardians of the galaxy in there yeah it's solely i mean it's just it really goes back to the idea of well universe of energy was there ellen's energy ellen's energy adventure whatever you still you still kind of get universe in there and 
Guardians of the Galaxy. They're they're all over all these different universes, and it's it, like it just. I I feel like I can see where they're connecting the dots, but I don't feel like they're following Joe Rody's uh, Joe Rody's principle in the way he was describing what you need to to think and process before you just place play something in the park and you know it's that's why that's why something like pandora as much as we we joked about it for all those years and how long it took to actually build that's that's why it's able to fit so seamlessly into that park today and and i just you know epcot when it's all finished and done it's still going to look like a lot of nonsense just shoved together especially in world discovery and that's not going to change so uh, that I, I hope one day they're able to form some natural cohesion there, but it's I, the park just I feel like they they're too far gone, and you know we still have World Showcase that that will find ways to bring in intellectual properties without destroying the entire the entire aesthetic of that part of the park. But Future World, World Discovery, World Nature, all of those World Celebration, whatever whatever world you want to call it, it's just they're putting a new name on a part of the park that just doesn't quite work. And ultimately, though, it's it's the people who spend money. If they're going there and they're happy because they can see Guardians of the Galaxy and and they can they can ride their thrill rides. I don't I don't think they're ever going to start going back to these more principled approaches about what really needs to be considered before before making an addition or a change to these parks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just feels to me it's the dumbing down of Epcot. So, which is sad. Sorry to see that happen. It is. Anyway. Oh, well, it was interesting. We'll have to, uh, as they put in new attractions, we'll have to revisit some of these questions. I I think that's important. Discuss them as, as fans. We, we owe it to ourselves in the company because you know even though I, there is some people who think that we actually have a say or pull in what disney does and uh, that is that is not true they're not listening to our podcasts and and the dis unplugged and making these massive decisions based on what we're saying but you know as fans when we come together and talk about it we are a catalyst for a greater conversation that could ha- be had to the point where Disney then has to react because there are so many voices. So e- even though even though it's just us sitting around armchair imagineering or whatever we want to call it, we are we might be starting the conversation that leads to better change because of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's or at least that's what I'm going to tell myself to help myself sleep at night. <laughs> that's good. All righty. Well, I haven't reminded folks about this, but since it was brought up on our Walt Disney World show this week, the Dis Family Reunion 2021 put on by Give Kids the World is rescheduled to September 9th and 10th. The after hours event at Galaxy's Edge is September 11th. And of course, this all benefits Give Kids the World. There will be a live podcast show and, and the details um, are forthcoming as yet. But I looked up, I hadn't been on the website in a while. They have added a whole lot to this site of people who are going to be there. Um, besides some of the other people, Jeff, is it Jeff Vale, Jeff Fall, president of Walt Disney World? You think I would know? Jeff Bally. Says, 
Valley. Okay, it just as it looks. But Pat Sajak, host of Wheel of Fortune, what is going to be there? Yeah, I don't know what he's doing. Maybe they're going to film a, a, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're going to be doing a week of shows at Walt Disney World, and he's going to be there. Chef Art Smith, of course, one of my favorite restaurants at Disney Springs, Homecoming. Um, Ridley Pearson, author of the Kingdom Kingdom Keepers series of books. Lee Cockrell, former executive vice, executive vice president of Walt Disney World Resort and a motivational speaker and has written a series of books. Jody Benson, we all know Jody Benson, voice of the Little Mermaid. Linda Larkin, voice of Jasmine. Serena Valentino, author of Villains. John August, or Auguste, screenwriter of Aladdin 2019, The Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie. Um, Jason Sorrell, former show writer and producer for Walt Disney Imagineering, and he's written a number of books on Disney attractions. Couple of artists, Will Gay. You have to go on the site just to look at his photo because he does not look happy. Um, and Joe Kaminsky, another Disney artist. And there's going to be a Bear in the Big Blue House reunion panel, all new Mickey Mouse Club reunion panels, stories from Disneyland openings with three people from, um, 1955 Disneyland. There's attractions actors panel. They've added more performers, a couple from Italy or no, or France. Well, no, one from France. Servers amuse the people that pile up the chairs no. and the guy climbs on top of them. Of course, Yeehaw Bob and Sergio the juggler. I think he's from Italy. He is. The I, Italy Pavilion. I hate him thoroughly. He's the <laughs> one who just blows the whistles and throws the soccer oh, balls the at people. Yes, and there he is with the soccer balls and the whistle around his neck. And then American Martian, uh, formerly known as Mulch, Sweat, and Shears. So there's some classic acts um, coming. Return to Zero, formerly known as Four for a Dollar. Off Kilter. How many of us miss them? And the Palm Beach Society Orchestra, but we know them better as the Grand Floridian Society. It's just like a big F you to Disney from all these people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is amazing. I mean, and then there's additional presentations. Um, Sally Dark Rides. Learn about the creation of animatronics from Sally Dark Rides and Adirondack Studios. Learn about theme park design and fabrication services from industry leader Adirondack Studios. I have to look them up, these two, but those are new. So there's all kinds of stuff going on that has been added from the original um event there's there's a lot different what an interesting group of individuals i i'm gonna I have to try to research more on this pat sajak acquire <laughs> i'm not i'm not against it i i'm just intrigued by it like why pat sajak <laughs> maybe he's the mc or something i don't know I, he clearly has years and years and years of experience on america's one of America's most beloved game shows. So, yeah, I get it. I've seen him there the last time. Was it last time Carol and I were there? The last time I was there with friends, um, we saw him and Vanna. They were there because yeah, they were filming. That was over one. I don't remember which event it was, but I think it was. I gosh, was I, I with you? I yeah, I believe we were all together. I want to say it was during Corey's um, drink around Disney Springs event that he did, and we saw them riding around on the amphicars outside yeah. Boathouse. I thought I was eating at Boathouse. Maybe, maybe you not. saw them there, and maybe you were I don't know. just. But I feel like 
They they were all over the place that event. I don't remember which one that was. That might have been a 2017 event or it's uh, the names all fall out of my head, but yeah, it's I've seen him in person there and I I look forward to maybe hearing him in person one day. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So, well, so hope to see you there. I have reservations and I have tickets, so I will be there. And tickets are still available. Um as of tonight's recording there were still tickets available so um maybe if you haven't if you haven't pulled the plug maybe now's the time all these new people yeah get you there well besides my own personal experiences visiting epcot i used a few references in putting together this episode on the book the epcot explorers encyclopedia a guide to walt disney world's greatest theme park by r.a peterson um, some articles and websites, so the Wikipedia on Mission Space, the Disney Wiki on Mission Space, Mission Space Epcot on AllEars.net, Epcot's Journey in Space on Diz Avenue, DisneyDocs.net. They have that um, that proposal for this for um, using re- repurposing the Horizons building mm. is on there, and it's really interesting to look at. Amusement Authority. What are the mechanics of Mission Space at Epcot? I looked at some videos, including the History of Mission Space, Expedition Epcot, and How Mission Space Works, Disney's Most Intense Ride by Amusement Labs. And, and of course, Craig, you have um, videos up on the Diz. Can you tell our listeners how to get find that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll, I'll include them in the show notes for this episode, but then uh, if you don't want to bother with that just make sure you go to youtube.com slash wdw info and then that will take you to the homepage of the diz and if you just uh use the the search tool icon that's right on that front page and search uh mission space i have 4k versions of the of the orange version once it was redone, as well as the green version, and I, I don't think they're too bad myself. I think they're pretty good, but yeah, they're they're on there that you can watch and enjoy, yeah, and without getting nauseous. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Oh, as always, you can find me on the random shows I'm on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network, and then also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at. Teleclaster, and my email is craig at wdwinfo.com. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me emails at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland. Check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon Podcasts. You can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Mm -hmm.